Well, I hope you won't be disappointed that I'm going to preach a sermon entirely unrelated to COVID-19. I'm sure there won't be too many of you out there who are saddened by that, but I've already said my piece on the topic, and with today being the beginning of Holy Week, I'd really like us to recenter and reorient ourselves on, you know, the most important story, you know, the Jesus story. I mean, this week, this, this week is truly the most important week in the history of, of the earth. Um, and his story, the story of this man, is the story of the most important man who's ever walked the face of the earth. And we, I just think it's very important. We shouldn't allow our collective preoccupation with the virus to um, inhibit our uh, ability to, to, um, to meditate upon the passion of Christ. We are in Mark 11 today, beginning in verse 12 is where I'll start. The events that are recorded here, the uh, cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the the temple took place, we think, on March the 30th and the 31st of the year A.D. 33. That would be Monday and Tuesday of Holy Week. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, Maybe I'll start in verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. This is Sunday, Palm Sunday. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, On Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit, and when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard him say it. Now, I am (laughs) not a horticulturalist, but as, as I understand it, a fig tree in that part of the world I mean, yes, it does go to leaf in the spring, um, but at this point, so if Jesus entered into Jerusalem, as we think, at the end of March, the beginning of April, uh, the, the fig tree should have, at this point of time, been producing some like green, immature fruit, and that fruit then comes, you know, it, it be, matures and, and it's available you know, sometime in June. But you notice that there isn't any fruit here. So what it means is from a distance, this tree and leaf, it has all the appearance of fruitfulness. And yet, it's not fruitful. It's diseased. It won't produce. It will never produce. And this is how Jesus viewed Israel, which is oftentimes in the Bible referred to symbolically as a fig tree. And it's also how he viewed the temple that he had gone into. Because we read this next. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? And here he quotes Isaiah 56, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it. And he quotes from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. I mean, essentially this action, the cleansing of the temple, was Jesus signing his own death warrant. Um, Yeah, he hit them in the pocketbooks. But I think primarily the, the worst part of it for them was he shamed them. He shamed the, the religious leaders publicly. And they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Then when evening came, 
they went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The cursing of the fig tree, interestingly enough, is the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in the Bible that involves, that directly involves the death of something living. If you think about it, I mean, all of his other miracles are life-giving. I mean, this is the one instance where he brings death. And that's actually been a problem for some critics down through the years. One of the famous atheists of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, he cites this as one of a series of examples of uh, Jesus' flawed moral character. I mean, he says, after all, I mean, here he is, he's cursing a perfectly helpless plant just because he's hungry and it doesn't have, uh, you know, fruit on the tree, which is a kind of a classic case of a brilliant man completely missing the point of the story. Because if you notice how the gospel writer Mark, how he uh, arranges the material, he does what's called a sandwiching technique where you go fig tree you know, cleansing of the temple fig tree as a way to say that these two events, they are, you know, completely um, related. Now, how about this? If you had to pick the most symbolically important building in the United States, the one that's at the very center of our national identity, the one that signifies and represents the very essence of our country, whatever building you, you select, I mean, get in your head right now. Suppose that you're convinced that in a relatively short period of time, that building is going to be decimated by an earthquake and completely destroyed by a major earthquake. And furthermore, you believe that that earthquake is going to be God's judgment upon the leaders of our nation and upon its inhabitants. Now, as a prophet, you feel an obligation to like, warn people. I mean, to give them a sign an urgent premonition of like this is about to take place and unless you unless you change your ways you too are going to fall under this judgment of God from a distance that fig tree that temple looks beautiful go ahead and and later this afternoon you know search on google and just pull up some pictures of Herod's temple i mean it was it was an architectural masterpiece and it was uh, uh, full of activity. I mean, there are people coming and going. I mean, it was, we don't have anything that's the equivalent of like the center of national life where like your, your nation kind of lives and dies by what takes place in, in one building um, like Herod's temple. It looks fruitful, but upon closer inspection, Jesus declares that it's, it's diseased, right? It's corrupt. It's idolatrous. It's wicked. It 35 years later, we know what happens according to history. The Roman legions march into the city of Jerusalem. They destroy it. They destroy, they completely destroy the temple. Imagine, I don't know, a a 20-story building so completely destroyed that no two bricks are left standing on top of the other or two stones. 
That's what happens as it falls under the curse of God. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, what is a fig tree seven days before Easter? Uh, what, is, what is God trying to tell us by that? Or uh, what does this Monday and Tuesday of the most important week of human history, wh- why is it here and what is it meant to teach us? Because we want to know. To answer that question, again, you kind of have to go back to the first century setting of the story. If, if you're a Jewish pilgrim who lives in another part of Israel, let's say you're up in the north in the region of Galilee, and you're going to make the annual pilgrimage down to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast, and you know hundreds of thousands of Jews would do that annually, uh, you need to have a sacrificial animal there, of course, but do you really want to transport an animal, have to like lug your, your oxen and your sheep hundreds and hundreds of miles? No, that's a total headache. So you need to have a place where you can buy a sacrificial animal on site. Now, originally, the location for that, you know, sacrificial animal market, whatever you want to call it, it was outside the city gates in the, um, outside the city gates on the hill of the Mount of Olives. But about three years prior to this incident, the religious leaders, the, the priests and or the Sadducees came up with this brilliant idea. Like, why don't we move it inside? have kind of a one-stop shop. Why don't we move the market inside of the court of the Gentiles, which was the largest of the different temple precincts, and and sell people their sacrificial animals there? Now, if you're unfamiliar with the temple, um, the temple was set up in kind of concentric circles or zones of access. At the very center of the temple was the, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, Into that, the high priest could only go once a year, and he could only go there um, on Yom Kippur with the blood of the sacrificial animal. Outside of that, oh, thank you. (laughs) You're looking for my water. Outside of that is the holy place. Only select priests can go in there daily to burn incense and replace the showbread. Outside of that would have been the court of the priests, into which they would, the, the altar of burnt offerings were, was located, also the bronze laver for washing your hands. The majority of the sacrifices in the temple take place in the court of the priests, followed by the court of Israel, which are for only Jewish men, followed by the court of the women, only Jewish women, and last and uh, not least, the largest of the temple precincts, the, the court of the Gentiles, which was as far as a non-Jew could go, Uh, A God-fearing Jew could go to worship Yahweh. Probably the priests, they thought to themselves, because it's such a large space, hey, we're only taking up one small corner of this court. Like any Jew who comes, or Gentile who comes in here, has plenty of other space in which, you know, to pray. But when you think of the sheer number of animals that were sacrificed at Passover, Josephus, the first century historian, said that in one year, there were 255,000 animals that were bought, uh, you know, bought, owned, slaughtered in the course of a Passover. Even if he has inflated those numbers by 50%, I mean, it would have been a zoo, an absolute zoo. I mean, We're talking about hundreds of thousands of livestock moving around in the place where you and I were supposed to go and pray to the Lord. Jesus enters and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56. I want to read to you that passage, Isaiah 56, 
which pictures a large number of Jews at the, in the last days flocking to Mount Zion, which has been raised up among all the mountains of the world. And it pictures, you know, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation coming to Mount Zion. And we read Isaiah, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, Susie, I know that you've gone to, you've done spiritual retreats before. You've told me at a monastery uh, where, um, I've never been to a monastery, but, uh, but imagine one, one place that is just entirely devoted to prayer 24-7. You know, every hour of every day, where, where that is the sole focus of the entire community there. And, and that is what God says he wants his temple to be. And instead it's turned into this commercial enterprise. In addition to stalls with animals that were set up in the court of the Gentiles, we read that there were also money changers in the temple. The Jews were, uh, they were expected to pay a temple tax for, it was like an annual temple tax used for the upkeep of the temple precincts. And in that day, most of the Roman coins were essentially 80% silver. But there was a particular shekel that was made on the coastal city of Tyre that was 94% silver. I mean, so it was a more pure pure coin. And what the temple, um, uh, the priests decided is that that will be, we will only accept a Tyrian shekel by means, uh, as a means of paying your temple tax. And so if you arrive in Jerusalem, you're not carrying around Tyrian shekels. You've got to exchange your money for that new currency. And what what they were doing, according to lots of historians, is they were charging exorbitant um, exchange rates, you know, currency fees. And in addition to that, uh, there are a long laundry list of other price gouging techniques that the uh, priests were were utilizing, um, they swindled people out of property, yeah, a long laundry list of economic malfeasance that they were guilty of. In this, the most sacred place on the, on the face of planet earth, it is just like it was in Jeremiah's day. It is, it is run by, it is full of robbers and thieves, full of the love of money, of idolatry, and completely unconcerned for the outsiders who come to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we know what happened in the days of Jeremiah. I mean, I was reading it this week. It's really stark to read through the book of Lamentations and see what God's judgment was then. And and then it comes again. So when the Lord comes to uh, the holy mount, the city, what does he look like? Well, he, he looks like Psalm 24, which we've read earlier. He looks like the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord who is mad as hell, the Lord who, in one of the other gospel accounts, takes a whip in his hand and is shaking a whip over the heads of the oxen and the sheep and the cattle, cracking a whip trying to, in the air trying to stampede the livestock. The Lord who we read here is shoving over tables, spilling coins all over the floor. Um, Maybe he's running around shouting, not in the Lord's house. 
I mean, there's spit flying from Jesus' mouth. Um, and it says that he, he's stopping people from carrying loads through the temple courts. If, um, so the temple precincts were very large. And if you were a person who was carrying, let's say a large, you needed to transport a large package through the city of Jerusalem. I don't want to go all the way around the temple courts. What they were doing is they were carrying them. They were using the temple as a shortcut to get from one side of the city to the other. And so Jesus is literally knocking packages out of people's arms in fury. And I really want you to see that picture. I really want you to see like how important it is. How important it is that there would be space for people like us to pray. Like how much that is at the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. I mean, I know that I am so guilty of, um, I'll just like jump into worship on a Sunday morning and I don't really take the time to just to think about how important it is that I give my whole heart, soul, body, and mind into and making this time a time of prayer, right? And making my songs really be, you know, from the depths of my heart. But I mean, that's what Jesus is so pissed about is that, is that is being lost upon outsiders like you and me. In fact, Mark's readers, that's what they most likely would have picked up on the most from this episode. That Jesus is mad as hell because he wanted there to be space for Gentile outsiders like us to be able to come close to God and pray. And that's what they would have noticed it. Uh, uh, noticed, noticed it. <laughs> noticed. <laughs> and if you stare at that event long enough... Um, you really, you really see the heartbeat of God. At the end of the court of Gentiles, there was a gateway that you would pass, pass in from moving from the court of Gentiles into the court of the women. In 1871, archaeologists in Jerusalem unearthed one of these warning signs that was placed above the, uh, the gateway. And it read, read in Latin and Greek, this is the inscription, no foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will immediately follow. Because <laughs> basically, basically, you would be put to death if you didn't have clearance and access into the next court. So if you're a Gentile and you make it to the court of the women, you're not allowed to go there. A woman to the court of Israel, not allowed to go there. A man, to the court of the priest, you're not allowed to go there. Uh, these concentric zones of access, all by God's design, made it impossible for anyone but the high priest alone to come face to face with God. Until, until what? Until Good Friday, when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, and the veil in the temple is separating the most holy place from the holy place is torn in two so that we might gain this present access by grace through faith uh, into the presence of God face to face, face to face by the blood of Jesus. And here's one thing I'd like you to think about this week. As you reflect on your previous year, like go from Easter of this year back to Easter of last year, like how, how much are you utilizing that access? Because Jesus, he, he did so much to grant us this amazing access to the Father. 
uh, how, are, how are you really utilizing it? You know, I've heard it said, I think it was David Pallison, who said there are fund- fundamentally two different ways of doing Christianity. In one way, you live as though you are connect- connected to a God who's intimately involved in all the details of your life. And in the other way, you just, you're not, you know. In the other way, it's a largely non-relational Christianity where, yeah, you pray, but it's rote. Yeah, you, yeah, you worship, but it's not relational. Uh, there's two fundamental ways. In one way, you learn to tell God in prayer what's on your heart as you would a dear friend. You tell God your troubles that he may comfort you, your joys that God may celebrate them with you, your longings so that God might purify them for you, your, your temptations that he might deliver you and shield you. you. You show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them one way or in the other way, you just don't. You don't even know what I'm talking about. You just don't. You know, I think, and Shelton made some allusion to this already, but this Holy Week that we are about to experience, I mean, it's the most unusual, it is the most unusual Holy Week in the history of the world thus far. Uh, and I think it has the potential to be one of the most spiritually, like, moving and alive Holy Weeks that we've ever gone through, doesn't it? I mean, God who has, like, cut away so many of our, our false securities he certainly removed a large number of our distractions and he's just, he's like torn one after another uh, of those away from us. It would be a tremendous shame if we've wasted this virus and wasted this Holy Week uh, simply doing what I'm doing, which is I walk around complaining that Easter is not going to be the way that I want it to be. You know, that our Easter service, which is my favorite service of the year, you know, it's this and Good Friday is, is not going to be as good and all of that. But um, what a mistake. What a, like, let's not waste this virus because this is a year, it's a special opportunity. And it, friends, it all comes back to utilizing the access that Jesus won for us, our access to the Father in prayer and scripture meditation that he won at the cost of his life. <clears throat> well, back to our passage, I want to read, begin reading in verse 21 because Jesus does have something additional to say about prayer. You, you probably caught that. Verse 21 Peter, he's looking at the fig tree that's now withered. Rabbi, uh, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus replies, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This promise about mountain-moving prayer is probably, at least in this instance, not what it seems. It's not a general comment about the extraordinary things that can be accomplished by God when we pray in faith. That's that's all true, Um, but that's not what he's saying. The key line, and you may have already picked it up, is when you say to this mountain, like anyone using that language while standing looking towards the city of Jerusalem— they could only mean one thing. The city of Jerusalem was built on a mountain and the highest point of the mountain was, we call it, the Temple Mount. Uh, It was the temple. And so to say, cast this mountain into the sea, 
is, is to pray that God's judgment, his righteous judgment, would come upon the temple. You know, we, being so distanced from the event, we easily forget the fact that the corrupt Jewish leaders of the first century, they were the number one threat to the gospel. Like, they were the number one, they were the greatest enemies for the spread of the gospel. They stymied the church every step of the way. They put Christians to death. Uh, The apostle Paul was one of them. All you have to do is read in the book of Acts, and it testifies that the number one enemy of the church in that day was those corrupt leaders. And so what Jesus is saying is if you pray that a prayer that justice will be done for your brothers and sisters who've been, been martyred, um, it will be done. I heard Rob Rayburn, the pastor of Faith Press Tacoma, tell a terrible but powerful story about God's justice that I want to uh, recount to you. About 30 years ago, he and his wife went out one evening for, it was either dinner or some kind of event. They had a babysitter come over and keep their kids. Well, when they returned home, they paid the babysitter. She got into her car and drove off. About three blocks away from the house, her car, she was carjacked. She was carjacked by a soldier who was stationed, I think, at Fort Lewis. Is that an, uh, an army installation just south of Tacoma, Washington? Yeah, he, he kidnapped her. He stuck her in the trunk of the car for large portions of the night. He raped her. And then he like, dumped her on the side of the road, alive, you know, but, but um, you know, oh so wounded. And this is Rob speaking. He says, it shocks me when I think about it all these years later, the evil and the cruelty and the utter inhumanity of what he did. And this man, he took great pains to hide his tracks too. But he was caught and he was tried in a military court. The trial lasted but one day and I was present for, his, for the trial and the sentencing. And you know what was amazing? As I looked at him in his uniform sitting at the table next to his defense attorney, how different he appeared there as the accused Then he had that horrible night as the cruel, confident kidnapper and rapist of our friend and sister. For now he had been caught. Now he had to face his punishment. And now, do you know what he looked like? He looked small, afraid, lost, and pitiful. Rob continues, I guarantee you, if somebody had said to him before he jumped into her car that night, if somebody had said to him, that you can do what you're about to do, but you must and will pay for it. You will spend the majority of your life behind bars in a federal prison. And then what is left of your, your life once you get out, all of that will be lived under the specter of what you do in these next few, few hours. Had somebody told him that, I don't think he would have done it. But at that moment, he didn't really think he would get caught. He, he expected to get away with it. And that, my friends is what the corrupt leaders of Israel believed. In fact, Jesus, he was telling them, he was telling them in their cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, you won't get away with this. 
And it's, so, it's what so many people believe today. It's why so many people live the way they do that today. Like nobody expects there to be a final judgment. Nobody expects that they'll ever have to answer for what they have done on this earth. But this image, the image of a mountain cast into a violent sea and the horrific judgment which followed as history declares, uh, it suggests that what most people think is so out to lunch it's a horrible, tragic miscalculation that people will make. Like God will bring everyone to account, everyone to account, for which like our only response to that is, God, Lord, have mercy. Just like we prayed in our confession of sin, Lord, have mercy. Please have mercy. As I was reflecting more on it, um, so this past Thursday, I was doing my my read-through-the-Bible plan, and my Old Testament reading was in the book of Joshua very devotional passages about the conquest and the destruction of the Canaanites, these terrible passages about judgment and vengeance that God brought upon these inhabitants of the land. He, He had waited nearly 400 years and given them 400 years to repent. But finally, the sword of judgment falls. And so I'm reading this thinking, man, this is not very devotional. (laughs) But then on the same day, I have a New Testament reading in Luke's gospel, chapter 15. The parable, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the most famously, the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of like God mercifully rejoicing every time he finds somebody and someone who is lost. And later in the day, I was talking to my wife, Erin. I said, honey, it it's really jarring to, to read both of those things from the Bible, same Bible, same day, because there's such a contrast between the other. Like, what am I supposed to do with, with this contrast? And then it hit me that, I mean, if we're being honest, that is the biblical Jesus. That is Jesus. Like, he is a wonderful, merciful Savior, and he is a final judge of the living of the dead who will punish evil and evildoers with hell. As he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, like he knows what must be done, not only to save Israel, but to save the whole world. Like he must die a brutal, murderous death outside the city gates in order that he might redeem his people with his own blood. And then to be later, later raised to life and enthroned as the king of heaven and earth. And as that king, he will one day ensure that justice will be done. Um, and so it's that, it's that weird just, juxtaposition. On the one hand, he will forgive absolutely anybody who asks for forgiveness in this life. Uh, one of the cool things in the book of Acts, yes, it, it says how the Jewish leaders were some of the greatest enemies. They were the greatest enemy of the gospel. But if you look at Acts chapter 6 verse 7, it says that a number of these corrupt priests actually end up becoming believers in Jesus Christ. They are forgiven. The apostle Paul, a murderer of Christians, he is forgiven. Apostle Peter denied Jesus. He is forgiven. Anyone who is like truly deeply sorry for their sins and asks for forgiveness, like he will forgive. And he says in verse 25 that he expects all of us who have received his forgiveness, we must forgive others on one hand. On the other hand, he is the Lord. He is fierce. Whether people recognize him or as such or not, he is He is mad as hell 
at evil, and he must not be trifled with. As I said earlier, this Holy Week has the potential to be uh, the greatest that we've ever experienced in terms of our own benefit, spiritual benefit. I'd highly recommend to you, if you haven't already done it, I seem to recommend this every year, but for your Holy Week reading, purchase on Kindle or in, well, I guess it would have to be on Kindle, The Final Days of Jesus by Andreas Kostenberger and, and, um, and Justin Taylor. It just walks you through all of the passages to read on each day of Holy Week. And it's a fantastic thing to meditate on. Um, the secondly, the, the second thing you may want to consider doing is we sent out in our church email a, a service for Maundy Thursday. It's a Passover, a Christian Passover Seder that the Stillman family, Jewish Christians in our church, uh, have utilized um, in their family for many years, and some of you have even participated in that Passover Seder with them. Uh, if you'd like to, you can do that on Thursday. You also hopefully received in the email um, the call to prayer and fasting that our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, along with the Anglican Church in North America and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, or, yeah, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, like all 550,000 of us are being called to fast this year on Good Friday and to pray. And so we will be having a noontime prayer on our Zoom account that I hope um, we've been having about nine on uh, Thursdays. This Friday, I hope, I honestly hope the whole church will come out and pray. And then on Good Friday evening at seven o'clock, we'll have our normal service. And then finally for Easter Sunday, I don't think, I think it's the easiest year ever to invite people to church. <laughs> like they don't even, they don't even have to go anywhere. All they have to do is click a button, um, invite them to Easter Sunday service. I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 16, the Psalm of David, where he says, you have not let your Holy One, uh, you have not abandoned your Holy One to the grave to see corruption. So uh, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to, to get people in church who would normally and not come. In conclusion, Samuel Beckett, the mid-20th century playwright, he's best known for, you probably read it in English class, his play Waiting for Godot, G-O-D-O-T. Uh, in that, uh, he tells the story of two characters who meet under a tree, and they talk together as they wait for this third character, Godot, to, to come on stage. Only Godot, G-O-D, O-T, God, God never comes. And near the end of the play, a boy comes and tells the men that Godot won't be coming. So they have to, um, so they decide to leave. They're going to leave the stage and yet they never move. They just stand there. They just stand there and then the curtain falls. They go nowhere. And, and that was Beckett's view of people like you and me, of people waiting, seeking, hoping, to find God, uh, waiting for God's return to earth, waiting for God to somehow give us purpose and meaning for life. I mean, Beckett is, is a cruel realist. There's no God. Um, there is no return. Well, Beckett wrote another play. He wrote many plays, but he wrote one other play that you um, may not be familiar with, and that is called Breath. You can look at it. It's on YouTube. There's several different versions of it. Um, breath, have you? 35 seconds long. Really quick watch on YouTube. And when it starts, the lights are down, everything is dark, and the beginning of it, you hear a birth cry. Um, and then slowly, uh, 
as the lights start to go up, you hear inhaling and exhaling of, of this breath, inhaling, exhaling. The lights reach their, their full brightness, and on the stage, it, there's nothing but trash. There's just trash spread all over the stage. Inhale, exhale, lights start to go down. Inhale, exhale, a final gurgling cry of death and and then the you know the lights are out 35 seconds it's it's over that's breath and what is what do you think Samuel Beckett's trying to tell us there is life is it just 35 seconds of rubbish is it just trash is that what it's meant to be and this picture in this uh, passage I just see a wonderful alternative to that kind of breath uh, imagine light starts to come up and you see on stage a, a tiny small seedling. And as, it grow, as the lights come on further and further, the seedling grows. First you think it's a plant. No, it's a tree. No, it's, it's this beautiful tree that springtime is here and has gone to leaf. And then underneath the leaves, you start to see this wonderful, tasty fruit that is being, um, that's growing onto the fig tree. And, uh, and then the Son of God and all of his majesty, you know, on a donkey's back kind of comes in from stage left or stage right. And he picks some of the tasty, delicious fruit. He eats it. He smiles. It's wonderful. He enjoys it. Other people begin to come and eat from this fig tree and enjoy, the, enjoy its fruit. And, and the fig tree, the fig tree is, is his church. The fig tree is what his church is supposed to be in worship. The fig tree is what his church is supposed to be in this world. Uh, a community and communion with God that is sh- sharing the fruit-bearing goodness of holiness, love, and forgiveness out for the rest of the world. And then I don't know how... Um, how I would tie it all together, but you know somehow somehow there must there must be blood, there must be blood because it that tree that tree was given its life by the blood of the Son of God that that will be shed on this good Friday. May God give you an incredibly blessed holy week. Um, make sure you make good use of the access that Jesus has won for you. Amen.